you're still with me, would you turn in your Bibles again to Genesis chapter 1. Speaking of being on time, I want to encourage you to be here for the scripture reading. That's the first thing we do in our worship service. Arguably one of the most important things, one of the purest things is to read God's word, simply, straightforward. Um, I want to encourage you to be here for the scripture reading because because of the length of passages that we'll take through the book of Genesis, I'm not going to be able to read the whole text in the sermon. And so I want you to get the full picture in our scripture reading at the beginning of the service. So just a note on that. And we're starting our series through Genesis, the book of the beginnings, the origin story. If I gave you a book and said, you need to read this, I want you to know this story. It's very important. Where would you start in that book? Would you open to the middle, read a short paragraph and go, ah, I know what this story is all about and give it back to me? Would you fast forward to the end and see where it all ends up and go, okay, I have a gist of the story and, and give it back to me? Or, or would you start at the beginning and read the story from left to right to understand the big picture, to get the full story? That would lead to a proper understanding of the book, a proper understanding of the story. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people who, who claim to know the Bible or to know about the Bible But the way that they read it is that they open to somewhere in the middle and and just pick a verse or pick a small passage and then claim to know the God that the story is about or claim to understand the Bible with a very small picture of what it actually is about. What I want to do in this series, my aim is to lay the foundation for us to start in the beginning together. And you might know about the stories. You, You may know of the Sunday school stories about Noah's Ark about Joseph and his brothers, um, about the creation event. But I want to show you how the stories tie together and lay a foundation for history, for your theology, for salvation in Christ. Genesis does all of those things. And so I'm excited about this series. I want to start with a preface, though. I have some preface remarks that I want to make, and there's three A's that I want you to understand. First of all, is that we submit to and surrender to the authority of God's Word. God's Word is inerrant and it is sufficient. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says that God breathed it out. All of Scripture is breathed out by God. And so it is God's Word. And if it's God's word and we worship a God who cannot lie, who does not deceive or has no errors in him, then his word is without error. It is inerrant. We also believe that God's word is sufficient, sufficient for all of life, every aspect of life. It is all we need to pursue godliness, to know God, to be saved, to interact with other people. We don't need an additional textbook to understand life. We don't need a science book to understand how the origin of the world came about. We submit to and surrender to the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of God's word. And so our approach is going to be taking God at his word. What he says is what we'll believe. And and we're going to approach God's word with a historical, literal hermeneutic. Um, 
we're going to take God's word at, at face value to understand it in its normalcy, normal interpretation. Our approach is going to be big picture, big passages, big purpose. I want, again, to show you kind of the movement of early history. We're going to be, in the for- we're going to be above the forest, not in the trees. I could preach a whole message on Genesis 1-1. I could preach a whole message on Genesis 1-26-28 about the creation of man. We could preach a message on each day of creation. We could really get into the nuance of the text. It is wonderful and it's good, but... I want to actually take the approach of giving you the big picture because I think it'll be helpful for you in laying the foundation. And that is my aim, the third A. My aim is to help lay a foundation. Genesis, the word, means origins or beginnings. And it is the origin story of the universe. It's the origin story of order. It's the origin of life. The origin story of man. It's the origin of marriage, the origin of evil, the origin of sin, the origin of languages, the origin of nations, the origin of cultures, the origin of governments, the origin of religions, and it has the origins of salvation, God's redemptive plan, all in the book of Genesis. Now, if you want to know the strength and integrity of a building, you need to first look at the foundation. That building is only as strong and only as stable as its foundation is strong and stable. Your theology, listen, your, your theology, what, how you understand God, your identity, how you understand yourself and what your purpose is, what the meaning of life is, will only be as strong as it is built on this foundation. You must understand what the book of Genesis teaches about these things, to have a strong foundation to understand who you are, who God is, and his way of salvation. So if you're confused about your life, if you're calloused towards the things of God, or if you're concerned about things going on in your life, then you need to go back to the beginning and look at that foundation. And so that's what I'm endeavoring, what we're going to endeavor to do in our study through Genesis is to lay the foundation for our theology, to lay the foundation for our understandings of who we are, our purpose in life, the meaning of life, and to lay a foundation where God lays it, the foundation of his salvation plan, redemption through Jesus Christ, his son. And so this is, this is an exciting series. I'm excited to teach it to you at least. I hope you're excited to receive it and learn from it. There's so much good to pull out of the book of Genesis. Today we'll look at just chapter 1, chapter 1 together. Let me pray, uh, just pause and give this time to the Lord and ask Him to speak through me. Heavenly Father, You are sovereign and benevolent Creator. You are high above us, holy and set apart, omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, omnipresent, present everywhere with us. And it's hard for us, our finite minds, to grasp your infinity. And even when we come to the creation account, we are blown away by the magnitude of it. The fact that you speak and stars fall from your lips. That things as ginormous as galaxies were created by a word. 
and creatures as small as microorganisms were detailed and specific and, and created for your pleasure and your joy. It is amazing. And to think that we as, as human beings created in your image, we're the crown of your creation. And you created us good. You created us for your glory, for your pleasure. And for us to enjoy pleasure with you. And for to us to enjoy your goodness. To have a loving covenant relationship with our God. God, help us to see that. Help us to have a greater vision for why we were created and what we are here for. Help us to see how big and glorious you are. And even though we have sinned, we have fallen short, as the story goes, that you have provided us a way back to you through Christ and that we can enjoy right relationship with you through Christ, the last Adam, the perfect man, our great high king. So, Lord, help us to just learn and glean from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's start with the Creator, because that's where God starts His book. Look at the first verse in your Bible. What or who is the subject of that verse? Grammar geeks. Who is the subject of the first verse of the Bible? God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is not only the subject of the first sentence of the Bible, He is the subject of the entire passage. All of Genesis 1, God is doing all the action. He speaks, He calls, He blesses, He gives, He makes, He creates, He rests, He sees. God is the first cause, He is the central being, if you will, of all of history, all of creation. The word used, uh, the word in the Hebrew for God is Elohim. Elohim. It's a plural noun, interestingly, but in context, in grammar, it refers to him as singular. This is, this is not conclusive evidence of a trinity, but it definitely hints at it. It shows us that this God, this one creator being is one in essence, yet could have three distinct persons. So that allows for an orthodox view of the Trinity. And of course, he does all the action in this passage. He is the primary subject. And you read through this event, as you're reading it, 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 it sounds, it comes across like a symphony. There's rhythm in the repeated phrases throughout this passage. There's crescendos in extraordinary feats of power, unimaginable power. There's beauty and melody as every living thing springs forth as he speaks, but you can't keep your eyes off the conductor. He is glorious and magnificent. God is big. And if you see nothing else from Genesis 1, you must see that God is big. He's the creator above all of creation. He calls and creation responds. As I prayed, he speaks and stars and galaxies fall from his lips. He speaks and light springs forth. He breathes and life comes out of his breath. 
He orders and every living organism obeys the command. He is extraordinarily magnificent. Now, notice there's no origin story for God. The Bible starts assuming you know he exists. He he doesn't just exist, he pre-existed. And there's no apologetic. There's no defense given. There's no reasons for God in the first verse of the Bible. The author assumes you know. And listen, you do know. You do know that there is a God. That there is a creator. The creation screams it out. The heavens declare that God exists. You know. In fact, you, are, you know even the atheist knows in his heart that there is a God and he's suppressing that truth in his heart. You know because the Bible says only a fool, only a fool would say in his heart that there is no God. Psalm 14. And so the author starts with an assumption, God exists, God pre-exists, and you know it. And so he begins to go on to say what God does. And, and look at what he does in that first sentence. That God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting, Henry Morris, one of the commentators, notes the three aspects of the universe. You have space, time, and mass, or space, time, and matter. All three are in the first verse. In the beginning marks the beginning of time. The heavens, uh, at this point, unformed or unseparated, you could say are the, is the space in which the universe exists. And then you've got this mass. It's hard to understand what's described in verse 2. The earth, this math, mass was void and there was darkness over it and it was kind of this watery substance. It's hard to imagine, but we have matter, we have mass. And, and so even in the first verse, we see the three aspects of the physical universe God creates. But this word for created is the Hebrew word bahra. And it is only used of God because only God could do this. You know what bahra means? It means to bring something into existence which did not previously exist. Or to bring something into existence without any previous existing matter. To create something out of nothing. That's what Bahra means. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. Nothing or no one else can create something out of nothing. Artificial intelligence can't do this. The smartest human being that has ever existed, the Einsteins of the world, can't do this. You and I can't do this. We can make things. We can put stuff together with pre-existing material. We can sure develop technological advancement with previous existing data. But we can't create something out of nothing. Only an infinitely powerful God could do this. And that is exactly what he did. Ex nihilo. Out of nothing he created everything. The heavens and the earth and all that exists within them. There's no greater power. There's no higher intelligence. He is supreme. Now there are implications of the facts that are presented to us in this passage, and even in the first verse of the Bible. There's attributes of God that we see on display, and, and they're confirmed later in Scripture, but I just want to show you how it's, how it's hinted at here in the first verse of the Bible. First of all, God is holy. What does that mean? God is 
God is set apart from the rest of creation. He's high above it. He doesn't submit or or he doesn't depend on anything he's created. He's set apart. He's in a different universe, a different world altogether. High above his creation. He is untouchable. He's holy. God is also omnipotent. All power in the universe. Even think about the explosive power of stars. Our nuclear bombs do not touch a star's explosion. God's more powerful than that. That power is derived in God. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. All power in the universe is derived in Him. Not a big bang. He's the one who created everything. God is self-existent. He's not created, nor is He dependent upon anyone or anything. He exists without a cause, without a beginning. He is the first cause, in fact. And there's no other before Him, which hints at His eternality. God is eternal. He didn't just pre-exist. He pre-existed eternally. If you could chart a course back in time, before these words, in the beginning, you will still not find an origin for God. And if you could chart forward, if you had a time machine that could go, go past all of the future events of history, past even the universe's capacity for time, you'll still not find an end for God. He is eternal. He is the great I am. He exists He has always existed and he will always exist. No other being is like him. And God is sovereign. If he created it, then he owns it. He determines the design. He determines purpose. He determines order. He's the sovereign king. He rules over it all. Everything that is created is accountable to him. He is, in in contrary to deism, which is the belief that God created the world and then just kind of abandoned it, we see in the rest of Scripture that God is not that way. God is intimately and personally involved in bringing all of His sovereign purposes, working all things together according to the counsel of His will. He is sovereign. What do we do with these facts and the implications of God being Sovereign, holy, omnipotent, eternal, self-existing creator. There's only one thing we can do. Give him all praise and glory with our lives. We owe him everything. We owe him everything. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. You've got to understand, in your small world, you have various concerns, troubles in your life. Even maybe circumstances that brought you here today. Ultimately, understand this. You're here today because God wills it. You're breathing right now. Your heart is beating right now because God wills it. He is sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. Do you give him what he is due? 
I wonder if you have picked one day this past week. I wonder if you've gone even one day without thinking about God. Having all your decisions be based on what you want or how you feel. I wonder if any decision you made in that one day was, I want to make the decision that gives God the glory. Whatever I do, whether I eat, drink, sleep, God gets the glory because he deserves it all. He's my creator and sustainer. Shouldn't our lives be less oriented around ourselves and more oriented around him? Because he created everything and he's worthy of it all. Of course, on the contrary, we are unworthy of any praise and glory. When your life is really good, he gets the credit. When your life is really bad, He's in control, and you should trust him. Did you see yourself in the first verse of the Bible? Did you see any mention of man? No. Is man the subject? We're one of the main objects. We're not the subject. History doesn't revolve around men. Men are obviously a part of history. God moves and raises kings and destroys them. He raises empires and destroys them. But it's not about man. It's about God. It's his story, as the phrase goes. And so listen, who are we? Who are we? I mean, when when men question God and, and his sovereignty, look at how God responds. God says to Job, Job went through terrible tragedies, tragedies that you couldn't imagine. And he, there's the question of why would God allow this to happen and how does God respond? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? When I told the waves where to stop? Where I placed the stars in the sky? Where were you, oh man? Oh, forgive me, God. I have, I have misunderstood the meaning of life. It's not all about me. It's about you. Romans 9, questioning the sovereignty of God and salvation. Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay? He does. Who are we to question God? Shouldn't we always trust him? Because he is good. He's not only sovereign, but he's good. The decline of humanity is marked by this in Romans 1. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. The decline of the human race is simply put this. We have decided to not honor God as creator, but we've decided to worship the creature. And then you have all kinds of sin and debauchery come out of that. So I wonder again, I ask the question, do you count God as worthy? Is your life oriented around him or is it oriented around you and what you want? He is creator. He deserves and is worthy of all the glory in your life. Everything you do should be for him, the creator, the subject of this story and and the whole story. Let's look second at the creation The Bible tells us that God created and finished the heavens and the earth in six days. We see that in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Created and finished 
the heavens and the earth in six days. Let's go through the days. And then he rests on the seventh. On day one, he created and separated light or day from darkness, night. And notice the order. God creates the the universe in such an order that it it makes sense logically to sustain life and to sustain even humankind. So he starts with light and darkness. And then second day, he created and separated the sky above from the waters of the earth below. On the third day, he created land and vegetation, plants and trees. On the fourth day, he created stars, sun, and moon. On the fifth day, he created sky and sea animals. And it's interesting, I had not really stopped to pay attention to this before, but God gives the sky and the sea animals a mandate. He gives them a command before he gives man the command. The the sky and the sea animals were commanded to multiply and fill the earth, to reproduce and scatter across the whole earth. Now, I recently, I caught up on the documentary, Our Planet. Have you seen this? Our Planet. It's it's incredible, beautiful picture documentary of just aspects of God's creation. Of course, they're creating it with the, through the lens of this happened over billions and billions of years, but, um, but the pictures are nonetheless captivating. And they talk about these birds and the migration patterns of birds. They're fascinating, tra- traveling thousands of miles to their breeding ground to have babies and then finding their way back. In fact, there's a species of sea turtle that finds its way back to this area of Mexico, this beach. And the same species of sea turtle, they come back and breed in the waters around this beach, and then they lay their eggs on this beach, the same sea turtles, year after year. And the babies hatch, and some of them you know, make it into the water, and they, they swim away hundreds, thousands of miles. But every year, they find their way back to the same beach. It's fascinating. And David Attenborough, the narrator, makes this comment. He says, it's by instinct that these animals find their way back to the same beach year after year. I want to elaborate on what instinct means biblically. Do you know what these sea turtles are doing? It's not natural instinct. They are obeying orders. They're fulfilling their mandate. They are creatures obeying the Creator. If that's what you mean by instinct, then sure. But let's clarify When God tells the birds and the sea animals to move, to multiply, to reproduce and fill the earth, and they do it, they're obeying the creator. God is the creator. He establishes order and design, and he does so for the sky and sea animals. On the sixth day, he creates land animals and man, human beings. And so... Mankind, the human race, starts on the sixth day. Now, the Bible tells us even more specifically that God created and finished the heavens and the earth in six, hear me, literal consecutive days. Not day ages, not millennia. This is not allegory. It's not figurative. It's to be understood literally. And I'll explain why. The answer is actually in the text. First of all, the word for day, the word day you see there in the text is yom. The Hebrew word yom. You'll see this phrase repeated after every day in the creation event. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. So on and so forth. You need to know something that when yom in Hebrew is joined with a number, 
and the phrase evening and morning, guess what it always means? A literal 24-hour day. You will be hard-pressed to find any Hebrew literature where that word yom, joined with a number, joined with evening and morning, means something other than. It normally means a 24-hour literal day. Also, there's another evidence in the text. We have the use of the Hebrew weyiktol verb, the weyiktol verb, which is a past tense verb joined by the conjunction and. If you look in your English Bible, there's a lot of ands. And God said, and God saw, and there was, and God separated, and God made, and it was so. You see that in the text? That's the Hebrew weyiktol verb. Now, you look at scholars, diligent scholars who, who know the Hebrew language, they will say this, and this is quoted from uh, a, one such biblical language scholar, Bill Mounts. He says this, the conjunction and verb form in the Hebrew language is only used to describe a sequence of consecutive events in a historical narrative. In other words, Genesis 1 is to be read and understood as a historical account, not an allegory, not a metaphor. This is historical narrative language that the author uses. Now, there is rhythm in the text, obviously. There are these kind of poetic, there's this poetic feel to it. Listen, why wouldn't there be? God is creating the universe from nothing. It looks to us as like a, a song. It's beautiful, it's extraordinary. But the author intends for you to know This is historically what happened, and this is exactly how it happened. This is historical narrative. It's to be understood literally. There's a third evidence in the Scripture. One of the great hermeneutical principles that we use is that Scripture helps us to interpret Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. That's a very important hermeneutical tool. Now, if you turn to Exodus 20, verse 8, we have a specific reference to the creation account. 20 verse 8. Here's another book uh, from Moses. And he's accounting for us the law of God. And in the law, we have this law about remembering the Sabbath. So God declares what the work week should look like in the seventh day of rest. He says in Genesis 28, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath, a rest to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? Look at number, uh, verse 11. Four. Here's the reason why. In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore... Conclusion, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, any Orthodox Jew knows that when God gave this law, he didn't mean for men to work for six ages, six millennia, six billion years, and then rest on the seventh billion year, or the seventh age. Normal interpretation of this is that, no, men work six literal 24-hour days, and we rest on the seventh day. And the reason for that is in reference to a literal week. Not a figurative week, 
a literal one, where God created the heavens and the earth in six days. He created and finished in six days. And he rested on the seventh literal day. So that's how we should understand the account, the way that Scripture understands the account, to take it literally, normally. You know, some men are trying to bend God's Word to accommodate the science book or to accommodate man-centered theories like day-age creation, gap theory, progressive creation, theistic evolution. There's all kinds. They're trying to accommodate, bend God's Word to accommodate the science book. I deny such theories. God's Word does not bend to accommodate science. Science bends to the authority of God's Word. Science bows the knee to God, the Creator. How He says it happened is how it happened. And I would warn you against trying to accommodate man-centered theories that work against God's stated fact. If you take God at His word, if you analyze the biblical data, the genealogy from Adam to Noah in Genesis 5, from Noah to Abraham in Genesis 11, from Abraham to Israel's captivity and the other historical books, we can approximate that in the beginning was about 4,000 B.C., And so the universe, all that we see and know, is about 6,000 years old. That's what God's Word submits to you. Will you take it as fact or fiction? Will you take God at His Word? Or will you take man at His Word? Oh, that can't be so. Look at all the assumed proof we have. I encourage you to analyze the proof. And you'll see that God's Word is true. God's Word is the best proof we have. And just for more information, and I can't go all into the nuance of this, but if, you're, if you want to learn more and research more, I encourage you to check out AnswersInGenesis.org. provides a great resource for biblical data and, and how the biblical data, actually science, supports the biblical data. It doesn't work against it. And so I'd encourage you to check out that website. There's another repeated phrase in this passage, and we're moving here. God saw that it was good. You see that after every day. God creates something and then he sees that it's good. What does it mean that creation is good in God's sight? Well, it's not our definition of good, like, oh, I want a good hamburger. Or, oh, man, that experience was good. No, God's good is objective. It's objective. On the, fir- on the one hand, God's good means perfect. Perfect. Every stage of creation was perfect, and then it was very perfect when it was completed. Very good. Now, I want to ask you if, if that is the standard, that's the objective standard of perfection, are deformities good? Is disease good? Is death good? No. So if God says that through every stage of creation it was good, it was perfect, then it, then it did not have things like deformity, disease, or even death. But in order for the evolutionary theory to fit in with what God's Word says, there must be deformity, disease, or death for human beings to evolve out of. So do you see how that theory contradicts what God's Word says? God says it was good. What does he mean when he says good? It was perfect at every stage. 
without any deficiency, deformity, disease, or death. Not only does good mean perfect, but it also means pleasing. Revelation 4.11 tells us that creation exists by His will, by His good pleasure. Psalm 115.3 says, God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. So you might ask, why did God create the world? He's a self Existent, self-sufficient God. He doesn't need the world, but he creates the world. Why did he do it? Here's a good answer. Because it pleased him. It delighted him to create a world. See, God is not a cosmic killjoy. He's not up in the sky trying to make our lives difficult. He created a good, pleasing world for himself to enjoy, for his glory, and for us to participate and find pleasure in with him. For us to glory in Him. I agree with John Piper when he said God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. That's what we were created for. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So don't you see that God is not only a sovereign creator, but He is a benevolent, good, gracious, merciful, and loving creator. He wanted to give Himself and us a world to enjoy. So in love he created, out of a desire for for pleasure for himself and his people he created. For your good he created, for his good and glory he created. I wonder if you delight in the creator who delights in you. Don't miss him, don't miss it. The creatures are cool, but the creator is captivating And it would be a shame for you to go out and see the world and see all the majestic sights, the wonders of the world, and and miss the God who created them for your joy and for his own. Miss his glory beyond the waterfall, beyond the incredible landscape. Whenever you see something like that, you know God is good, and he made it all good. It's for your good and his glory. So there's the creation. Finally, the crown. Stay with me a little bit longer today, but we'll get through it. The crown. The crown of God's creation came on the sixth day. We notice a pause here in the text. God consults with himself. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice again the plurality there. It's a hint at the Trinity. A hint at the Trinity. So there's a pause here that marks his most significant creation. His most significant creation is man. Man. The human race. Mankind. And he creates man in his image and after his likeness. Two really important phrases to understand your identity. First of all, we're made in the image of God, which reflects kingship. Okay? Write that down. Kingship. Men and women are God's vice regents, his many rulers, his little kings and queens. And we were made to rule on his behalf and represent his authority to the rest of creation. We are God's middle managers, if you you could say, meant to manage his creation for his glory. In the ancient Near East, this is a familiar concept. When a king ruled over a large geography, he'd set up statues. He set up images of himself, carved images in stone. You might think of the pharaohs who did this. And what do those images state? Effectively, if pharaoh's face was on the side of the wall, you would know that pharaoh rules here. They have a large kingdom, different 
regions, Pharaoh's face is on the wall, then Pharaoh rules here. Effectively, we do the same thing. We are meant to be living statues, living representatives to communicate to the rest of creation, God rules here. We're made in his image. And it fits our mandate. What were were we commanded by God to do? To multiply, fill the earth, and do what? To subdue it. To rule. To manage. To steward on his behalf. And so to be made in his image means that you and I are made to be little kings and queens that steward the world and its resources for God. That represent the high king to the rest of creation. For his glory. And for our good. And when we're doing that, we're going to be most satisfied. But when we start to take from God's glory, start to point to ourselves, boast in ourselves, we're going to feel most empty and dissatisfied. Because it's not about us. It's about God. The second phrase here is after his likeness, which reflects relationship. Okay, so in his image is kingship. After his likeness is relationship. Men and women are God's sons and daughters who resemble him and we can relate with him and each other unlike any other creature that he has created. Again, pharaohs in the ancient east were called the sons of God, which meant they had a special relationship with the gods that others did not have. And so similarly, we as humankind, we have a special relationship with God that the other creatures do not have. And we resemble him in ways. In Genesis 5, it says in verse 1, when God created Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. We see that phrase again, likeness. And then listen to this. In verse 3, it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathers a son in his own likeness. So it reflects that father-son relationship, the filial relationship. And Adam's son resembled his father. Listen, a chimpanzee can reproduce and multiply, and they're pretty smart. Sure, certain species of penguins, I I guess, they commit to one mate for the rest of their life. Whales can communicate to each other through the water, but not one of them can worship God and enjoy covenant relationship with him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. Not one of them have the ability to love others as they love themselves. They don't have moral consciousness. They don't have the ability to think abstractly. They don't have an appreciation and understanding of beauty and the complexity in creation. These things resemble an eternally moral, intelligent, creative, relational, personal, and emotional creator. And you and I have those things. So we are made in his image and after his likeness. Yet I believe it is tragic that many of us live under the animals in the sense that we disobey. At least the animals obey their orders. We have disregarded ours in many ways. But God has not abandoned us. He's given us a way back. You and I have disregarded God in many ways. We've sought glory for ourselves. We've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of man or other creatures. What a shame. The crown of his creation totally corrupted by sin and has affected the rest. We'll see that in chapter 3. But not yet. We're still in the good, okay? The very good. You'll see that God blesses mankind 
He blessed them before he commands them. Just again, emphasizing the fact he's a benevolent creator. He's good. He's gracious. He's a benevolent king. He gives beyond our needs. He's the source of all grace, power, pleasure, joy, and happiness. His blessing is beyond sufficient. He doesn't just bless mankind. He commands mankind. Simple and straightforward instructions can be summarized this way. Reproduce and rule. That's what you need to do. Reproduce and rule. Fill the earth. Humanity doesn't need to be concerned about population control. Our earth can sustainably hold more people than we currently have. Childbearing should be encouraged, not discouraged. And for those unable to have children, for whatever cause, biological, they should consider fostering, consider adoption, or an intentional pursuit of discipleship in the next generation in your local church. But we should be pro-life in every way as Christians because it's part of our mandate. It's what we're commanded to do. And the earth is ours to steward, and we should take good care of it because God intended for us to do that way. The ground is for us to till. The materials are for us to build. The animals are for us to enjoy and tenderly lead and care for as God tenderly leads and cares for us. That was his intention. So God blesses mankind. He commands mankind. And God provides for mankind, finally. He gives mankind all the fuel they need for the job. Every plant for food, it says in verse 29 and 30. Every tree with seed you have for food. God makes sure, makes sure that we're nourished and that we're cared for because, again, he is benevolent and gracious. Adam did not deserve any of these things. We don't deserve or earn any of these things. We get them because God is a sovereign and good creator. So we have a wonderful picture, don't we, of creation the creation event. We see the marvelous majesty of God. It's hard to imagine how somebody like Adam or somebody like Eve could go wrong. When God has given every tree in the garden except one, we'll see in Genesis chapter 2, how could they deny everything for something so small and corrupt the world? Well, we'll see that that happens and you would think at that point, if God is sovereign creator, if he's in control of all things, and, and mankind makes such a serious mistake, what prevents God from just scrapping it all and starting over? Why wouldn't God start anew with a different race, a different kind of creature, a better crown, so to speak? That's not his plan. His plan is more beautiful and glorious than that. We're going to see it unfold in Genesis. This is... This is fascinating. The creator who created everything through his power and for his glory. The one through whom all was created and for whom all was created. Get this. When mankind sins and corrupts himself against God, that creator steps down. He doesn't disregard mankind. He doesn't leave and start over. He steps down. He becomes a man. Surrounded by corruption. Tempted as man is, but without sin. He suffers under his creation, who crucifies him, beats him, flogs him, and throws him up on a cross. And he willingly does that to provide a sacrifice that will accomplish our salvation. He pays the debt of sin that we should have paid. He pays it on the cross. And that God-man is buried 
and he raises from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death, defeating Satan, the origin of sin, and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back to give us something better than a garden. He's coming back with a kingdom. And instead of Adam, a fallible man ruling this kingdom, Christ the infallible will rule it. And he will reign forever in righteousness. And you will be given glorified bodies, a better future, a better eternity than even what the garden provided Adam. The new heavens and the new earth will be even more beautiful than Genesis 1 describes. Read Revelation 21 and 22. This is your future if you believe in Christ. If you don't know Christ, then you don't know the Father, you don't know your Creator, and the consequence of sin is death and hell. So if you've been captivated by the beauty of the Creator in this account, I would encourage you, trust in Christ today. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him, and that's the only way that you can be right with this wonderful, good, and sovereign Creator. And for us who know Him, let's remember that we know Him. Let's remember that He's the sovereign Creator, that He's the center of the universe, not me. So with my little problems, the little things that I'm going through, they might be significant in my eyes. It might seem overwhelming at times, but remember, God is the sovereign and benevolent Creator. If He threw the universe into existence in six days, can He not care for you and your little problems in your life, whether they're health, spiritual? He's intimately aware and He's all-powerful. Trust in Him. Don't trust in anybody else. Trust in God. And serve the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take your word and plant it into our hearts, that we would be motivated worshipers of you, that we would see you as glorious and, and worthy of it all, because you have created everything. You are the high king, the creator of all things. You are sovereign, you are benevolent, you are worthy of all our praise. Sometimes, Lord, forgive us, we get distracted with the minutia of life. We get distracted by the pleasures of the world. We we even have, we have sinned against you, God, and we've disregarded your goodness, your grace to us. And, and in our sin, we've rebelled against you and rejected you. God, help us. Thank you for providing a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has forgiven our sins. If we trust in him, we have new life in Christ, and we, we repent. We turn from our sin, and we entrust ourselves to you. God, help us to be, have that big vision, the grand vision of worshiping and serving our Creator all the days of our lives. I pray that every decision this week would be marked, impacted by the reality that you are sovereign and you are good. Help, help us to apply your word, your Holy Spirit, move in our hearts to implant the word and brand it in our hearts that we might live by it every day. In Jesus' name, amen.